sometimes Scripture can be a bit shocking because of what it includes, because of what it tells us. If you're reading along with us in that reading plan, the Trinity Together reading plan, later this month we'll bounce back to Genesis. And we're going to read some things toward the end of Genesis that you're going to say, I can't believe they put that in there. Really? It'll be a bit shocking. But Scripture can also be shocking sometimes because of what it leaves out. Because of what it doesn't include. I think today is one of those times as we finish up John chapter 11 this morning, we've been looking at Jesus' seventh sign where He raises His friend Lazarus from the dead. This thing that itself ought to be shocking if we weren't so familiar with it, where he, he calls out and his dead friend walks out of his tomb. It's an absolutely stunning display of divine power and authority. But here's what I find a bit shocking this week as we finish these verses in chapter 11. It's what Scripture doesn't include. We get zero further details about Lazarus. We don't get his reaction to being brought back to life. John doesn't tell us the first thing that he said. If he was hungry or thirsty, if he was confused or disoriented, if he hugged Jesus or gave him a high five, nothing. We don't find out anything more about Lazarus. It would have been nice to know some of those details, I think. But it's not an accident. It's very much on purpose. Because as interesting as those things would be to learn, they're not the point of this sign. Remember, this is a sign. It's pointing us to things about who Jesus is and about what Jesus came to do. And so, In these final verses of 11, we don't get anything else about Lazarus, but we get quite a bit, a a gold mine, if, if you will. It's pointing us again to who Jesus is and what he's going to do. There's two big themes that I want you to look out for this morning. We'll see them again and again. One is sovereignty, and the other is substitution. We'll see it again and again throughout these verses. So stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's Word. These last verses of John chapter 11, uh, 45 down through 57. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. 
So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. May God bless the preaching of his inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word. We've already prayed, so please be seated. I want us to start this morning by taking a a brief overview of what we have here. There's a lot of moving parts. There's some nuts and bolts I want us to look at briefly. We've seen time and time again in this gospel division. Anytime Jesus speaks, anytime he acts, folks are divided. You find those on the one hand that believe and many others who reject what Jesus says or does. Raising Lazarus from the dead has, of course, (laughs) resulted in this same division. This time, some of the rejecting ones, well, they were tattletales. They went to the Pharisees, and they said, you're not going to believe what he's gone and done this time. Like, you really won't even believe what he's done. It's, it's crazy. And it gets the religious leaders' attention. They spring into action. Verse 47 says they gathered. Most of your versions are going to say the council. Now, some of your translations use a transliteration. Right, That's a big 25-cent word. A transliteration of the Greek word. So a transliteration is when you just take the letters in English in this case, that most closely match the letters in the Greek word. And when you do that, you come up with something that many of you have probably heard before, Sanhedrin. Right? That's what this council is. It's the Sanhedrin. Seventy men, we think, thereabouts. Lots of priests, lots of Sadducees, a few Pharisees, though they were in the minority. And some just wealthy folks own enough land and you get to be a part. And what the Sanhedrin is, what this council is, is it's this combined judicial and legislative body that oversaw the internal affairs for the Jewish people. And this council, this Sanhedrin, they realized that this latest, greatest miracle of Jesus was far more problematic than the rest. And so they devise a plan that Jesus must die. Now, it, it, that's something they've wanted for a long time, right? They've picked up stones several times. They've, they've been plotting and scheming. And, oh, wouldn't it be nice if we could get rid of him? But now, oh, they've got to get it done. And they've got to get it done fast before any more damage is done. Now, I mentioned earlier two big themes, sovereignty and substitution. And we see sovereignty at play here because Jesus withdraws once again. They've got this plan. They've got this plan for the imminent death of Jesus. And so Jesus withdraws once again, like we've seen him do before, because Jesus refuses. 
to let any man or group of men force him to the cross before it's time. He's not running from what he knows is coming, but he is being obedient to the Father and to the Father's plan. The timing's got to be just right. It's got to be at just the right moment. And we see part of the sovereign timing of this is in verse 55. Part of the plan is that things should come to a head, they should reach their climax at the time of Passover. And this, of course, is no accident. It's no accident that Jesus, our spotless Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, would be slain at the exact time of God's people remembering how thousands of years prior they had taken shelter and found refuge under the blood of the Lamb. So that's the gist of what's going on here. Just a brief overview. Now I want to dive deeper and I want to explore these twin themes of sovereignty and substitution and do so first by asking a question. Why so much division? Why do we always see this division? And and this is a review. We've covered this before, but it is well worth taking another look at because we've got it once again. Verses 45 and 46. Many believed, but others rejected. Why is this always the case that we've seen in John's gospel? Why is this still the case today? Right? If you're talking to folks, if you're talking to your friends, if you're talking to co-workers or family members about the Lord, some will believe. Some will believe the good news about Jesus and will place their faith in Him. But many, many others will, will reject it. Even if you make a really compelling case for trusting Jesus as he's offered in the gospel. (laughs) I tell you what, those that, that rejected Jesus right here in chapter 11, after having witnessed this dead man walk out of his grave, those who then heard the resulting buzz about that, Those that rejected Jesus. I mean, if anybody, anywhere at any time could have said, oh, maybe I should give this second thought. (laughs) It would be these guys. If anything were going to convince you, it would be that. But it didn't convince It left many rejecting Jesus still. It left these religious leaders, right? These these men steeped in the Scriptures, these men that knew the prophecies about Messiah who was coming and who would even raise the dead. All these things pointing to Jesus, they were were conversant in, they, they knew them. This last miracle should have at least given them pause and say, oh, 
know what we've said, but maybe we should revisit this. But they don't. They say, no, absolutely not. Now, why is that? Why such hardened, obstinate, persistent rejection? Well, let me give you again the principle that's at work here. We've already seen it in this gospel, and it is throughout Scripture. Here's the principle. No one, no one responds to Jesus positively. No one believes, no one places their trust in Him until God sovereignly intervenes in their life and makes that belief possible. No one believes, no one trusts until God comes in sovereign power and makes that belief possible. It is not possible to believe without God's intervention, without His assistance, because as a result of the fall, as a result of all the way back to Adam and Eve's disobedience in the garden, we are now by nature, our natural state is one of being rebels and enemies of God. And without the intervention of God, we all remain in that natural state, and we will continue to rebel, and we will continue to reject, and we will continue to refuse to believe more and more obstinately. Think back to a really long time ago when we were in chapter 3 of this gospel. Jesus talking with Nicodemus. He says, Nicodemus, unless a man is born again, not only can he not enter the kingdom of God, he can't even see it. Being born again by God's Spirit comes prior to any belief, to any faith expressed in Jesus. Without the intervening work of God causing you or me to be born again by His Spirit, we are all left in that natural state of rejection and unbelief. We see that very clearly with these religious leaders. With this council, this this Sanhedrin. And we also get a really good picture. I love this. We get a really good picture of what that natural state looks like in practical terms. What are the symptoms that you see of that natural state of rejection and unbelief? There's three things that we see in these religious leaders in this text. And it just so happens that they are a perfect mirror for what we see in our own lives, in our own natural states of rejection and rebellion. These things are self-sufficiency, fear and anxiety, and idolatry. So I want to look at these. The first, self-sufficiency. Look at verses 47 and 48. 
when I was studying this week and I had my notes going out beside these verses, I put I called this the arrogant we. They realize they've got a big problem on their hands, and they're asking the question, what are we going to do about it? How are we going to fix this? If we let him go on like this, if we let him go on like this, as if... They think they've got it in their power or in their capacity to do anything that would change or thwart the plan of Almighty God. How arrogant, how presumptuous, and how very much like us. Every single one of us, we, we do this. We, we do this First and foremost, when we're faced with the problem of our own guilt and sin. Man, what am I going to do to fix this? I see I've got a bit of a problem here. What am I going to do to make this right? Well, I'm, I'm going to be nicer. I'm going to be more patient. I'm going to be more generous. I'm going to read my Bible more. I'm going to pray. I'm going to pile up good deeds that outweigh my bad and Surely then God wouldn't dare turn me away. And folks, that's just manipulation. That's the same arrogance. That's the same presumption. That's using God to get him to give us something we want. And if it's not eternal life that we're after, it's some other blessing. And in the power of self, we try to put God in our debt. We try to bend his arm behind his back so that he's forced to give us what we want. Um, small problem with that it doesn't work and it very often leaves us with this second thing on our list it leaves us battling fear and anxiety uh, the, the council the, the, these religious leaders they are very much on edge they are super worried and super anxious full of fear verse 48 what are they afraid of they're afraid that they're going to lose their place and their nation. Now, to understand this fear, we need to understand a little bit of what's going on politically at this time. They're living under Roman occupation. Their little council, their Sanhedrin, uh, only has as much power and authority as Rome allows them to have. And the only way for them to keep that little bit of power and authority that they have is to keep the peace. No riots. No uprisings. No kerfuffles. You've got to keep your noses clean. And you've got to keep your people in line. A small problem. Jesus. He's healing people and raising people from the dead and doing all these things that creates a bit of excitement. There's a buzz because of Jesus. Have you heard? Have you seen? Oh my gosh, you're not going to believe. People are stirring. 
And you also need to remember that some of the people believing in Jesus are not believing in Jesus for the right reasons. Some of the people believing in Jesus are believing in him because they're thinking and hoping and praying, ooh, he's going to be the one that's going to overthrow the Roman occupiers. In many ways, the land right now is a powder keg. And the religious leaders are smart enough to have figured that out. They're anxious and fearful because of it. They do not want to lose their place or their nation. They know all too well from their history the devastation of losing their their place. And most likely their place is talking about the temple. They know what it's like to have the temple destroyed. They know what it's like to lose their land. Not only by this occupation they're currently going on, they know what it's like to be driven out of the land. They know what it's like to be carted off, enslaved, and sent into exile. And they're saying, oh, no, not again. Oh, no, don't let that happen. And on one level, this is so sad, y'all. Their fear, their anxiety that they have, when in their very midst is one who has the power over all. There's one in their midst who has the power over death even. Not to mention governments and authorities and things like that. unspeakable power that could have taken care of all this fear and anxiety. But no. Uh, A third thing we see in their natural state, we see in our natural state how idolatrous they slash we are. Now, why are they so upset? Why are they so agitated by all of this and coming up with this plan. Bottom line, their idols are being threatened. Their source of identity and significance is in jeopardy. You see, concern over the temple, concern over the land, that could be a noble thing. That could be a a commendable thing if their concern was purely for the glory and the worship of God. If deep down in their hearts they were fretting and they were saying, what, what would we do if we couldn't go to the temple and be in the presence of God? What would we do if we couldn't go and offer these sacrifices? What would we do if we couldn't give him the glory that he's due? That'd be terrible. But I guarantee you that's not what they're thinking about and talking about when they're saying, we're going to lose our place. They're talking about their positions. They're talking about their power. They're talking about their prestige. We know this from reading the rest of the Gospels. They're addicted to the limelight. They love these titles. They love the the garb and the costumes and what they get to wear because of their titles. They love the spotlight. They love the authority. And it has become who they are. 
It's their identity. It's their worth. It's their value. And Jesus is threatening all that. They might lose everything because of it. And this probably resonates with some of you as you consider the claims of Jesus, as you would consider even this possibility of of trusting him, of, of, of following him. You find him threatening. You find him messing with your idols, your sources of identity and pleasure and significance. Well, good thing for the religious leaders that their main man, Caiaphas, comes up with a plan. He's got a plan. It's a well-articulated plan. Look at how he describes it in verses 49 and 50. He seems a little impatient. I can almost hear him saying, you fools, to his fellow religious leaders. Better for you, better for all of us, that one man should die for the people. Yeah, yeah, I know it's kind of dirty. It's a little unseemly. It's for the best. It's a numbers thing. It's just his one life for the lives of all these people. People will sacrifice him so we can be safe. His death will substitute for all our potential pain and loss. Y'all, we've seen John use a bunch of irony in writing his gospel. Maybe this is the pinnacle. It's hard to best this. How this high priest unbeknownst to himself, explains the core of the gospel message perfectly. It was certainly not his intent. He did not mean to do this. He's speaking entirely from from an expedient political standpoint. What's going to get them out of a jam? Caiaphas opens his mouth, and these words are blasphemous, right? This scheming plan of his that Jesus should be killed for their idolatrous benefit. But because of God's sovereign authority again, Caiaphas opens his mouth with his own words and prophesies what we'll do. Caiaphas was a wicked man, but God's sovereignty overrode that, foreordained that those blasphemous and scheming words that came out of his mouth would also proclaim in advance the glorious word of gospel hope, that Jesus would be our substitute, that he would gather in, verse 52, all the children of God, All those that the Father had given to him, yes, one man will die for the people. Jesus will die for the sake of many as a substitute for many. Think even further back than chapter 3. Think back to chapter 1. John the Baptist sees Jesus approaching in the distance. There he is. Behold the Lamb of God. There he is. Do you see him, the lamb who would die in our place and take away our sins? I want to close the loop here. 
want you to see this. I want you to marvel with me. How Jesus substituting himself for us addresses all three of those things that we looked at in that list of our rebellious natural state. How his being our substitute, the lamb slain for us, is the end of our self-sufficiency. He substitutes himself for us and does what only he can do. What we could never begin to do for ourselves. Only he was righteous. Only he was spotless. Only he could pay for our sin and unrighteousness and give us his righteousness in exchange so that we might stand before the Father one day acceptable in his sight. His being our substitute is also the end of fear and anxiety. He conquers our biggest enemies of sin and death. And if he conquers those, then what is there left for us to face that he can't also conquer? Everything else beyond those two are small potatoes. How could he not also take care of those? Now what about our idols? What about how we've been pursuing identity and significance and pleasure? Well, he gives that to us as well. New identities, new significance. We're no longer rebels and enemies. We've become children of God. And the fact that he did all this, the fact that he substituted himself for us because of the great love with which he loves us, how could he not then become the unrivaled object of our worship and affection? How could we possibly look to these other things and worship them like we used to? When we have this beautiful Savior who loved us and gave himself for us. Our sovereign God had a plan to rescue us, to send his Son to be our substitute, and to intervene in our rebellious hearts to enable that we could trust in him. Would you do that even this morning? Let's pray. Oh, Father, we see your sovereign plan and your sovereign power. How you took even the wicked words of a scheming man and preached the gospel through them. Would you come in power this morning once again? Would you open blind eyes and unstop deaf ears? Would you remove impenetrable hearts of stone and replace them with hearts of flesh that can now beat for the Lord Jesus, believing Him and trusting Him? Come in power and do your work for your glory and for our good, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand so we can